I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. Welcome to the second Down the Drain episode of Join the Dots. In the first part, we talked with Dr. Yunus Ubamba-Jazwa about the chemicals that are in the toiletries and medicines. In this episode, we are continuing our discussion on how much water we use and water quality and its impacts on human and environmental health. But this time, our focus is the chemicals and water used in the production of clothes and chemicals we use for washing and the microfibers that are released to the environment through production and use. So we love fashion, the colours, the texture, and often it's so incredibly cheap. It's cheaper now than it's ever been. And how could we resist that? But today we are about One Health again, which Dr. Yunus Ubamba-Jazwa introduced us to in the last episode. And we're back talking with Yunus. It's lovely to have you back, Yunus. Thank you, Ije. It's lovely to be back. So just to remind our listeners, you are a medical microbiologist, is that right? Yeah. I'm working on water pollution and human health and emerging contaminants and removal of those contaminants from the water environment for the benefit of us all. Sabina. The first issue comes when the textiles are made. Growing cotton, linen, and other natural fibers requires water, as well as a number of chemicals, which may end up in water systems, as does the manufacturing of synthetic fibers. The clothes that arrive in your home still have chemicals on them, which can end up on your skin and down the drain. As you use your clothes, you wash them, and washing uses water, releases chemicals, and microfibers by the billions. We breathe these at home, and many also go down the drain, impacting our water systems and ecosystems downstream. So one of the astonishing things that I've discovered is that we're actually using more synthetic fabrics now than in the 80s. In my recollection, I was virtually clothed in synthetic fabrics then, so you know our perceptions aren't always accurate. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, that was the day of gabardine trousers. And since then, I suppose I've become more earth mothery and I have sought more natural fibers. But studies show that there's a sevenfold increase in the use of polyester and other synthetic fibers. So the proportion of synthetics has steadily risen since the 80s although it looks like cotton and wool have sort of a constant trend. We're still using a lot of them. Well, the 80s was definitely a decade of denim, actually, wasn't it? So maybe that accounts for the sort of relatively constant use of cotton. The other thing that I found absolutely astonishing was the fact that one pair of jeans takes 7,000 litres of water, and that is equivalent to an average person's drinking needs for six years. 
But alongside all of that water, which is obviously a huge, literally, drain on resource use, there's an awful lot of chemicals released during production. So, Eunice, what sorts of things are being used in our clothes and in our daily lives? So, Jelia, you're right. In terms of the information about 7,000 litres of water to produce one gene, it's very, very startling. But if you look in your cupboard and you think of the vast number of clothes you have, how many liters of water do I have? Then it also just jerks you to start thinking about buying clothes and um, using clothes for, for quite a while. Obviously, when you dye clothes, once you wash it, some is going to rinse off. And for the life cycle of the clothing, the dye is eventually going to come out and go down the drain to say, we have all these fantastic dyes. And unfortunately, it's a huge issue because most of the dyes are not natural dyes. I think historically, when we used to dye our clothes, different sort of community groups would have natural dyes that they would use. So the color offerings were very limited. But now we can produce various types of colors. And due to the fact that we're using chemicals to do that, Then in terms of the production itself, to make clothes feel and look the way that we appreciate them and we want them to flow in our body, we need to put different types of compounds on these clothes. And I don't want our listeners to just think of clothes only. We want them to think about textiles and fabrics. They are also a problem when it comes to pollution downstream. If you put your furniture out in the environment and it degrades, all of that stuff can seep into your soil and then can eventually seep into your water. Unfortunately, if we do have wastewater treatment works that are are not functioning, once again, these chemicals are then released into our water resources. In our previous episode, we talked about endocrine disruptors. And once again, you would get chemicals that come off the clothes, which have the ability to cause endocrine disruption in some of our aquatic life as well. And then you have also the potential for carcinogens. So in our drinking water treatment facilities, if we don't necessarily remove all the carcinogens, then maybe long term, we might have various types of cancers developing because of these carcinogens that are present. But I think we need a lot of research into this to really determine the long term effects of some of these chemicals. It's probably worth just explaining what endocrine disruptors are, what they do. They are compounds that affect hormonal systems. So it could be in this case, we're thinking about our fish and how our male fish become feminine due to the exposure of various chemicals. Thank you, Eunice, for reminding us that it's not just about the fashion and the clothes, but also industrial and technical textiles and home furnishings. And there's a stat here from an NGO called Kemsic, Um And they say that 20% of global water pollution is caused by Mm -hmm. dyeing and finishing textile products, affecting both the health of workers and local communities. That's an example of how we are exporting that kind of impact because most of our clothes, at least in the UK where I sit, (laughs) they're not produced here anymore. So you mentioned about chemicals and why they're used for the functionality of the product. But I think you had three groupings, Sabina, about the kind of chemicals that are used. From reports I read, there are three classifications of chemicals Mm -hmm. that are used during clothing or textile production. The first are functional chemicals. These give us the properties that we want, um, the colorants, the dyes, the crease resistance, anti-shrinking agents, oil, soil, and water repellents. A lot of our clothes have plastic components 
flame retardants, biocides. I mean, as Eunice pointed out, these are an issue in your clothing. They're very much in furnishings too. We have engineered nanoparticles like nanosilver for antibacterial properties. That's very popular in sports clothing. There are also auxiliary substances. Those are chemicals used to make textile processes work. So the chemicals we use for the manufacturing. And then there are a number of unintended substances, um, the things that just come along for the ride, like solvents and toxic metals. That's a nice and shortest summary possible of such a complex <laughs> production <laughs> system. So thank you, Sabina. <laughs> no, no, it's, thank you, genuinely. But I think, yeah, it is very complex because we tend to think that chemicals are one thing, but most chemicals are components of different chemicals, aren't they? And they, they use in the regulatory world substance, you know, different substances come together to make a chemical that you need in the production. And then once they used, they dissolve into different things. We discover a chemical is useful for a particular production process and only after using it, starts picking it up in the environmental monitoring that we realize it might be causing some issues. And then we put regulation in place to encourage industry to replace that chemical with something else. And you kind of need to be a bit cautious here because you don't want to replace one chemical with a substitute that's possibly worse in some other areas. I think in the regulatory thing, they call it regrettable substitution. <laughs> Interesting. There's a yeah, catch up that we all play. And I think that's all pointing towards use less as much as you can and use the materials that you know have got the, the less impacts and take precautionary action. We talked about fire retardants, and if you look at number of deaths caused by house fires, they've gone down because we managed to use fire retardant. You know, we need to balance the usefulness of chemicals with their risks and negative impacts and regulate that. All the chemicals and how we regulate them, how we select between them is the subject of an upcoming episode on fashion industry. But for now, we want to focus on the impacts of chemicals and microfibers in the clothes and what kind of impacts they might have on us and the environment. Interestingly, there's not a whole lot of information. I mean, a lot of the chemicals we're talking about are some of the usual suspects we've discussed before. And the question, as we've always point out when we talk about risk assessment, is about hazard, how toxic or dangerous something is, mm -hmm. and exposure. So when the clothes get to you and you put them on, do they pose a risk? And there's surprisingly limited research on this. There is some research on the levels of chemicals and potential risk. A lot of the chemicals we described are still on clothing when it comes to consumers for individual chemicals, not at acutely toxic levels. But for sensitive individuals, there's evidence that you can have dermal or skin irritation issues. And there's some evidence that some of the toxic and carcinogenic compounds could be getting in your system. The thing is, it's difficult to predict risks from chemical mixtures. It seems that it would make sense that you always wash new clothes and textiles before you wear them or use them. I mean, that's difficult to do with some of the home furnishings. But of course, this is rinsing things downstream. 
if you are a sensitive individual, it's hard to get information. There are not reporting requirements. As in many subjects we talked about, the chemicals being used, it's hard to find out and try to avoid them because they're not reported. They're part of the process. And therefore, it's hard to make informed decisions. I think also in terms of the risk data that's available, it's not available in a way that the public can easily understand and apply it to their way of life, let me put it that way. When it comes to chemicals, you you do have quite a, a number of good publications on the effects on humans. So like Sabina mentioned, you have your dermal effects. Inhalation is a big one that they have done a lot of work on, but the application is very difficult. Um, and also because of the vast number of chemicals, there's just a lot. You look at a country's priority list of chemicals, for instance, they've just used an arbitrary way of selecting to say, okay, these are the chemicals we will focus on now. So if those chemicals happen to be in textile production or clothes, then we mention it. But if it's not, then we don't disclose any information on it. So the priority list of chemicals keeps on changing, keeps on growing, and it's difficult to keep up with that information and then make it in a way that is easily absorbed and can be used by the public. So the human health component, I feel, is actually better handled compared to the environment, you know. And if we are thinking about down the drain, the environmental issues then are very, very scary. A lot of these chemicals are not even looked at in terms of whether they are in the environment or not. And when it comes to clothing, and I I want to focus on clothing because clothing is unique because you have a lot of now landfills that are packed with secondhand clothing and bringing it to me being on the African continent, what happens is you have a lot of clothes that come from Europe, that come from North America, that come into the continent. And the ones that are not sold, they are all put into landfills. That's where a lot of the leachates come from. And what we now want to do is to find out what kind of mixtures of chemicals are we seeing and maybe not focus so much more on the individual chemicals, but on the mixtures and to say, this mixture is causing this effect on the environment. It has this effect on humans. So, so leachate, can you, mm-hmm. this is a term that not many people will have heard. <laughs> I unfortunately did. You know, it was one of my first projects was about leachate. So I do know. What is leachate? So leachate basically is the liquid that would come out of your soil. So for instance, let's say if you have a big hole, you've put a wide variety of things inside, you've closed it up with soil and then it rains or you have groundwater that comes in and then slowly water comes out of that environment. And It's the bin juice. That would be, yeah, it's, juice. it's bin yeah. juice, yeah. At, juice, at, the, juice. At, the, at the aggregate scale, right? <laughs> exactly. The juice so. that comes up, that would be but what lovely the- topic for a Sunday morning <laughs> when we're yes. recording this. Um, but so, yeah. so, so you think that there's regulation for landfill and says cover the landfill so that that yes. kind of water doesn't seep into soil and then groundwater yes. and then rivers, but yes. that the coverings are made by some plastics as well, probably. Yeah, I'm just conscious that one of the things about landfill is we're advised not to put textiles into landfill Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of the methane from the natural fibres breaking down and other gases. Mm. So there's a whole issue here, not just about what happens with landfill, but also what goes into landfill Mm. that we should probably tackle in another episode. 
It's my understanding that, Eunice, mm. a lot of the countries where our unwanted textiles end up, mm. landfills do not have leachate control. So it's very much a water no, water impact. While we may exactly. be able to afford certain uncontrolled landfills and mm-hmm. and improper waste disposal. So again, we're shipping our impact someplace where people are less resourced to manage them. Exactly. So yes. we may know that we shouldn't put yeah. it in landfill. So what we do is we ship it to other countries. Yes. And that's what I'm trying to point out, that water is a continuum. So irrespective, it's going to now just pollute natural waterways all across the globe. That is where the problem lies. You have controls in your textile industry, but when those same clothes come to a different area and they're not controlled for properly in terms of disposal, then they still affect water. So it's looking at that whole value chain of production. I I think that's where I want to go back to. And these are some of the topics we talked about in the first episode, but yes, it comes back to that as well. So we're exporting our impacts at the beginning and end of the life cycle. Yes. Somebody else is paying the cost for our cheap textiles. Yes. But there are a lot of impacts even as we use our textiles, aren't there? Yes, And it would be interesting to explore some of the impacts of washing and use of clothing. Yeah, so I think the main objective of washing from a health perspective is what we're concerned about. So we want to make sure that our clothes are clean, the clothes that obviously our animals use or their blankets. When we think about those who are also involved in cloth diapering, which I want to just bring in because a lot of women are really proponents of it. Even though it's inconvenient, they do see the use of it in terms of saving water, saving detergents. But at the end of the day, they want their babies to be safe. So in terms of washing, we have those three issues. We want to make sure we have enough water. We want to make sure that a detergent works. And we want to make sure that we are not using a lot of energy. As things change and renewable energy is becoming more available, we might want to say, let's cut down our detergents as much as possible, but then increase our temperature of water because we know our microorganisms get killed by temperature alone. Heat is enough to destroy most microorganisms. So if we have clothing or we have textiles that can withstand higher temperatures, then we rather reduce the chemicals that we are using in detergents. But it's something that is going to keep on evolving over time as science develops and new opportunities come on the horizon. So we want clean clothes, but our concerns are to use less water, less energy, less detergent, but still achieve that outcome of clean clothes. So big drivers, the water impact. We have those 7,000 liters for a pair of jeans. How much water do I use in the life cycle of using the jeans? But I think there's quite a lot of debate about how often we should wash our jeans. And I've seen some jeans manufacturers have sort of said not very often at all, actually. Mm. We tend to wash them far more than we need to. And that there are other ways of of actually killing the things that make our clothes smell, which is obviously the other thing. We want them to be healthy, but we also want to get close to people without offending their noses. (laughs) I'm told that actually if we, we put our clothes in the freezer for a bit, it can kill off some of the bacteria that make our clothes smell. Yes without washing them quite as often. Well, I think the whole idea of washing clothing less often, whether you give things a sniff test, I think there are recommendations to air things out. Sun is a wonderful 
disinfectant, but washing our clothes less, learning how to spot clean certain spots and only really wash things when they're they're grimy and using full loads with more efficient machines is important. So when we're washing things, they really need to be washed. And then we're not running a load with just one or two items. So that's water usage. You can get a machine that uses less water and you wash with full loads. And less often, look at the alternatives. Less often, yeah. yeah. Look at the alternatives yeah. to washing. So you might be spot cleaning, you might be freezing some of your clothes, you might be hanging them out on the line without washing them to give them a really good air. Yeah, in. in the sun. Which is my old aunt does that all, every time she comes home. <laughs> so then the other thing is the energy, right? Yes. Yes, but a lot of that energy is used in warming the water. Eunice already mentioned that higher temperatures can be used for disinfecting you suggest that there were trade-offs there, Eunice. Yeah. So I think if we had, for instance, an energy efficient machine, but then at the same time, we had more access to energy. So we, are, we were talking about the non-renewable energy production. So if we have more energy available, then we could focus rather than on increasing our temperature to clean our clothes rather than focusing on the chemicals mm. in our detergents, you know, making those chemicals harsher in order to clean clothes at lower temperatures. And we also wanted to bring attention to the fact that some of the green methods of cleaning, so they might not use enough detergent, but they are not studies to really show whether they're cleaning the clothes to the level that the clothes need to be cleaned in. And so maybe if it's just a, a coat you're wearing, that's okay. But for clothes that are touching your body, and we mentioned cloth diapering, which is really a serious one for babies, you want to ensure that whatever it is you're using kills off the bacteria. We're talking about reducing detergent or healthier detergents, but we really haven't discussed what it is about detergent that we should be concerned about. So what we have now is a whole range of laundry detergents, and some of them have stuff in them that obviously is not healthy for the environment. So the major one that I think a lot of people know about is eutrophication, which is when you see green algae sitting on top of your water body. So you see that a lot in dams, in reservoirs, even in lakes. Some of that algae is caused because of phosphate in our detergents. And phosphate is a builder. It's actually not what cleans our clothes, but it helps the detergent to work better. And phosphate is also what plants need to grow. Um, it's one of the nutrients that they need to grow. So once there's too much phosphate in the water, then the plants grow too much and then they take up all the oxygen that is in your water body and then you start having your water quality deteriorating. So eutrophication, that whole process where algae grows and takes up the oxygen, makes the water quality really unsafe and poor. And that has an impact then when we want to take water to produce for drinking. We should clarify for our audience, mm. it's not the plants growing that uses oxygen. We know no. plants generate oxygen, oxygen yes. but all that excess organic matter falls to the bottom of the water exactly. body. Yeah. And then as it degrades decomposes. and decomposes, mm. that's where we get our oxygen use. Yes. Thank you, Sabine. And mm -hmm. so it seems counterintuitive that having plants in water destroys the oxygen. This is the quantity issue, isn't it? Phosphate, which is normally good yes. for plants, when it's too much of it, exactly, it's too good almost. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> too good for us. So too many plants live and then yeah. die taking up oxygen as they decompose and then there isn't enough oxygen for yes. fish or invertebrates. Yeah. 
Yeah, you've you've altered the natural growth rate, basically. That's it. That's a really good way of mm. thinking of it. Because there are some chemicals that are not naturally occurring and we're putting it in the environment and they're causing different issues, which we'll come to. But in the case of phosphates and many other like that, I guess, is just we're playing with the balance, natural balance of things. If I'm buying a detergent, phosphate is sort of mentioned on the product label or something and then... There are parabens. Yeah, parabens, they're also fragrances. Fragrances also has an effect on our health right from the beginning. So obviously those of us who are allergic to various smells and scents and as well as topical dermatitis, for fragrances, you might be able to see the health effects quite quickly. But then again, they also go down the drain. They go into our water environment and they also have issues in terms of the reactions to the aquatic life that may be in our environment as well. Mm. And that, again, we don't know much about. And there's also some stuff with sodium in it, like some chemicals, which I want sodium to self pronounce the yes. names of. <laughs> Those are the softeners, I think, if I'm not mistaken. What do they do when they're in the environment? Do you know? Softeners are also part of the endocrine disruptor range. A lot of the fabric softeners are petroleum-based too, mm. and they don't really soften your clothes. They sort mm. of coat them with an oily... Substance, substance and build yes. up in your washing machine yes. too, as well as holding in a lot of toxins. But also they seem to be counterintuitive because I find my laundry gets less clean yeah. mm -hmm. as a result of the buildup. Yes. And I've noticed as well, quite a few manufacturers advise against using fabric softeners. So I think we're basically being sold something that we don't need at all and, and could be doing quite a lot of damage. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that is just about appealing to our senses. You know, we mm. want like shiny hair, we want softer clothes, that, that kind of thing. We're told we want those things. Yes, we're told we want them. It's a nice crisp shirt rather than mm -hmm. a soft shirt. Might be a good thing. <laughs> I mean, we, we live in an area with really hard water and so there is a mineral buildup. But again, as you all know, I've been using a little bit of vinegar in every wash to offset that for yes. some time. Yes. And yes. although I had a lot of resistance initially from my teenagers, it's working just fine. Our machines are cleaner. Our clothes are cleaner. Did, did they smell like fish and chips? They believe they can smell it. I disagree. I can't smell it. And maybe when things first come out of the machine. But I mean, what's wrong with fish and chips? <laughs> Gotta love it. <laughs> fish and chips. So, so Edge, you did some research on more green and detergent alternatives. And you found that yeah. getting a lot of information that is consistent for the different products was yeah. a challenge. Thank you for the compliment of calling that research. <laughs> but, you know, we looked around a few websites. Most importantly is like even agreeing what kind of things you want to know about detergents, right? Or any product when you're buying, what kind of factors you should take into account. So there are obviously things like what kind of product it is. Some are liquid, powder, capsules. There are now strips coming onto the market. And, you know, is it going to be bulky? Is it going to be smaller packets? Obviously, how much is it? And not how much is it in absolute terms, but also how much is it per wash? Even that is not uniformly calculated. It also depends how many washes you put, of course. It depends on size of your household. And then there's this long list of chemicals. Uh, we'll share it on the website, but there's 10 chemicals to watch out for in the detergents. What I found is that detergents that are out there as greener alternatives are very loud about what chemicals their product does not contain. 
they're not so loud about what it does contain. And when you look at much more mainstream products, you know, big brands that you might be familiar with, is that they don't say anything. <laughs> so Purcell, I looked at Purcell because, you know, it's such a big brand. And then you click it, the product detail that takes you to a Unilever website that has a, an alphabet of ingredients. And I wanted to see phosphate, so I clicked P and there's no phosphate in there. And it like it doesn't talk about it. So are you saying that it's just not giving us any information on whether there's phosphates? Basically, they will probably say that it's they won't want to tell you what's in it because it's part of the sort yes, of patented exactly. formula yeah. of the product. <laughs> but we don't want the exact quantities. We probably won't be able to even understand what the units are anyway. But you just want to say whether it's there or not. So, you know, there are lots of the greener things. We'll say there's no parabens, no phosphates. We'll put that in the website, the little sort of chart that I did. But we're not like recommending one or the other. But some of the greener sort of products that, that are advertised as greener, they're actually putting a lot of emphasis on packaging. So they don't have plastic bottles or they don't have plastic wrappers or because they're concentrated or maybe they're strips rather than liquid. You can ship more of them in any given container. So they have lots of statistics comparing how much transport space you save and how many transport miles you save. Um, and therefore carbon and other, other environmental problems. I'm not saying that that's less important than the content of the detergent, but when you dig a little deeper, greener is the packaging and transport rather than necessarily the composition of the cleaning agents. And they are, they're not that much more expensive, actually. Used to, there used to be a time where you know, greener alternatives were double, triple the price of, sort of more mainstream things. I think range between minimum, maximum, it could be from 10p to 30p per wash, pence, that is, we're in the UK. But generally, prices are sort of around 20, 25 pence per wash in the UK. So basically what you're saying is a lot of people are invoking a green halo, but what's green about the, that product varies widely and trying to do a comparative assessment is challenging because they talk about the thing they're good at more than the thing they're not. Yes, in general, but it's hard to conclude. I don't know if there's anything to hide that they're hiding, but, you know. I think also sometimes with the chemicals that are so-called good chemicals, they might also become a problem if they're used in huge amounts of quantities. So I think that's something yes. we, we need to stress. A chemical might be good in the quantity that it's being used in, and it might be good in terms of the fact that it doesn't have any effect on us in human health. But once you start using huge amounts of it, um, then it could also become a problem. Green products might be good in terms of their characteristics, but when it now becomes their use and then obviously accumulation, then you might start seeing some negative effects of them. So however green the product is, don't use it too liberally. It doesn't mean you need to wash like one pair of pants at a time just because it's a green detergent. There's also, I forgot actually, there's also non-detergent things on the market yeah. as well, like um, mineral pellets to use to wash. And um, I don't know anything about them. They do give the names of the minerals. There's also natural occurring soap granules. They grow, don't they? And you, mm. I mean, I think they're hugely expensive in, in the UK, but... I'm really interested to know whether they're any good because they are from a renewable resource. They are artificial chemical free. 
I've seen sites that talk about making your own laundry detergent from things like horse chestnuts and all kinds of natural things that contain saponins. Also, some people make their own laundry detergent by grating bar soap. Mm. And there are arguments for and against that. Some of the reading we did suggested that soap rather than detergent might build up in your machine and on your clothing. And again, to use soap in the wash, you're going to need much higher temperatures. Mm -hmm. So again, we start talking about trade-offs. You can sit there and say, I'm being all pioneerish and making my own stuff, but is it functioning as you need in the situation that Mm -hmm. you want? And that brings us back to Eunice. You had some thoughts about trade-offs and how the best choice differs depending on the situation you're in. Yeah, I think so. And I think if you've um, summed it up nicely in terms of that, you need to know what your end goal is. So for instance, if you have a pile of clothes that are not really heavily soiled, then use your soap. So for the spot cleaning, we're talking about hand washing. If you're going to hand wash a couple of items, because hand washing, it's the friction that actually will get rid of most of your stains. And So you're putting mechanical energy in getting rid of your stains and stuff. So if you can do that, then do that. But at the same time, if you know what you're working with, For instance, hotels, industry that deals with a lot of textiles and fabrics, they would need higher temperatures. They would need more of a cleanser that can actually work. So you would then say, my end goal is to make sure that people who come and stay in the hotel don't get sick. So I might have to use very high temperatures. Is it 90 degrees for a wash and make sure that I use enough detergent as well? Mm. We're all smiling here, the idea of staying in a hotel, <laughs> which is not <laughs> oh a quarantine hotel. But even then, we can we can encourage less. You yes. know, that that's you're right, absolutely, about hygiene in the hotels. But like, if you're staying in a hotel room for five days, you don't need no, your you sheets don't. changed exactly. every day, even yes. every other day. I mean, do, do you do that at home? No, of you don't. Of course not. <laughs> we said at the top that there are more and more non-natural fibers in the clothes. And then what we're understanding now that every time we wash them or even we during usage that we shed them, right? And we just, they are micro, so we don't know we're shedding them, but they are causing problems by accumulating. Eunice, could you tell us a little bit about what kind of problems microfiber is causing? Yeah, I think I'd like to start with saying that when you look at your clothing or textiles, the first thing that comes to your mind is not necessarily plastic. There's that disconnect that, oh my gosh, my clothes are made up of plastic. Yes, they are. And I think that's something that we need to think about. Maybe in the 80s, the clothes did look plastic. But now now they they are plastic. (laughs) But now they don't look plastic. They look like they're made up of Mm. natural materials. But yeah, I think about 64% of clothing made now is made up of plastic. So your nylon, your polyester, all these materials that make our clothes very functional, but at the same time are a problem. You have these tiny shreds of plastic that come up every time you're using your clothing, every time you're washing it. And that's what we term microfibers. So people will know a lot more about microplastics, but within microplastics is a subcategory called microfibers. And they're even thinner than a hair strand, but They are very problematic because once again, you have chemicals that can attach to them and you have your aquatic life that might ingest them. Then it goes into our food chain. We want people to know is that the washing process really removes a lot of the microfibers 
our machines are not necessarily designed to capture the fibers. And then they go obviously into our water resources. They go into our wastewater treatment works. Not all wastewater treatment works can remove the fibers again. And then they go into our aquatic system where they start causing problems for our aquatic life. We need to take this into consideration when we are producing our textiles. Just like how we said that our detergents, our soaps, our shampoos in our previous episode should as much as possible not have microbeads in them. Now it's also important for textile industry to think about this microfiber production as well. So I hadn't actually quite realized it's not necessarily the microfibers that are damaging the fresh water or marine life, but it's the chemicals that hang on to them that do it. That's not covered a lot because we, all we see is poor turtles with plastic bags in their mouths and things like that, which is horrible. Yes. But actually there's something more unseen that's just as bad, if not worse. Tell us a little bit about that. With microfibers, we, we're still unsure. And at the Water Research Commission, where I currently work, we are conducting some research to see what the health effects specifically of microfibers are, because they're very, very tiny. But we know that they do absorb chemicals. Obviously, once they're absorbing dangerous chemicals, then any fish or any aquatic life that's ingesting it, it becomes a problem. And then we obviously go on to ingest it. In terms of the microfibers itself, causing an issue that's still under research, but we know that from the chemicals that the microfibers absorb, there is a problem there. We do know that we're finding microfibers in our bodies, in our lungs, and in almost all our food, yes. aren't we? Yes. I mean, we're breathing them, they're in fish guts. Mm -hmm. We're still learning whether it matters, but it seems to be wherever we look, they are. Even just looking at the UK, it's estimated that 9 trillion microfibers are released into wastewater every week. Yeah. About 500,000 tons per year, equivalent to every single person on the planet throwing 15 plastic shopping bags directly into the sea every year. It's small, we can't see it, but it seems like we've done the easy bit, removing microbeads from yes, our toothpaste. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And now we really need to step back and think about how to manage the impact from our clothing addiction. That's an important point, Sabine, because historically, a lot of people have focused on microbead production and the textile industry has really not been brought to book or a lot of pressure has not been put on them to deal with microfibers because with microbeads, it was easier for everybody to see it. So if you take your face wash, you would feel that it's granular. So obviously it, it might have some microbeads in it, you know, your toothpaste. But with clothing, even people thinking that clothing is plastic is quite a mind, you know, <laughs> a mind shift. And then to think that, okay, my clothing is actually releasing all of these things into the air and it's plastic and it's potentially dangerous. So there has to be pressure so that there's more research done on that for us to really know what the long-term effects and short-term effects of microfibers are, as well as we've done for microbeads, basically. It's interesting when one talks about unintended impacts, because to use less disposable kitchen towels and fewer cleaning products, I got a bunch of microfiber rags, and I do a lot of my cleaning with them. But of course, now I'm aware that 
I've just mm -hmm. changed to a different set of impacts. Oh, yes. Whether that's better or worse still remains to be seen. Yes, yeah. But it's a little frustrating because I was quite proud of myself before I knew about micro <laughs> 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 Same here. Yeah, it's the trade-offs. Because if you think about those towels that are also impregnated with silver, so you have silver, you have engineered nanoparticles in there. Okay, you're you're getting the disinfection that you need. You're probably not washing your towel as you would wash it. But then we also know that ENPs, engineered nanoparticles, are also a problem, you know, <laughs> downstream. So, yeah. So when I was looking at the detergents, I realized that a couple of other products to capture microfibers during the wash mm -hmm. in your household washing machine. One is a bag and you put your synthetic clothes into the bag and the bag captures the microfibers and then whatever is lint left at the bottom, you need to pick it up and put it in your bin. But, you know, it's hard to distinguish which clothes are synthetic, which aren't. The other one is a ball that you put in the drum of the washing machine and it captures the microfiber. Both of those brands, Guppy Friend and Cora Ball, do refer to uh, scientific research by universities and, and they talk about the percentage of microfibers these products can capture. Presumably that's a good thing, but there's a little mm. part of my brain saying is if we then take the microfibers out of the Cora ball or the bag or whatever and put them in our Bin. household waste, which mm. then goes into landfill, mm. there may still be a route into the environment. Mm. And so we need to think about not putting them there in the first place. The hierarchy always applies when you've got risks associated with things, use less, in this case, wash less, yeah, create less problem in the first place mm -hmm. rather than create the same or growing problem and finding newer and newer solutions to it, exactly. which will have their own problems <laughs> yeah. as well. There are a couple rules of thumb following in your, your waste hierarchy and the reduce. It seems to me that newer items shed more, but that if we treat clothing harshly, we weaken fibers and they yes. also shed. Mm -hmm. So tumble dryers and high temperature tend to make things shed more, even if the tumble dryers catch the fibers. One thing that seemed counterintuitive to me is gentle wash cycles which you think would produce fewer microfibers because the water to clothing ratio is higher. Yeah. There's more loss of microfibers. Oh, so having full loads again, which we've talked about in a lot of issues, and less water seems to reduce the amount of microfiber release. I think in France, there's a move to require washing machine manufacturers to have microfiber filters in the washing machine so that we're catching them in situ and that manufacturers will have to develop technology. This is not going to be that easy. Filtration that will capture these fibers will change flow. And so yes. there's trade-offs there that we need to consider. But catching the fibers at the source, mm. if we're failing to reduce, seems a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. I think also something like the textile industry, yeah. as Jill was pointing out, you should be forced to look at your production design right Absolutely. from the beginning. Now we have to find a means of managing this waste. 
And there ought to be a sort of environmental impact assessment before new products are put on the market. Yes, a, a really detailed one. We yeah. are consuming more and we need to think in advance yes, before yeah. we put products on the market yes. about exactly. what the impacts of those products yes. are and how we're going to dispose of them safely and put the challenge onto the manufacturers. I'm hopeful about the future, actually. There are some changes in that lots of companies are and, and policymakers are talking about circular economy. So yeah. they're saying, you know, yeah. it's not produce, use and dispose, but produce, use, dispose, yes. reformulate, exactly. reuse, yeah. put it back in the beginning of the production process, right? And they found that the chemicals you put in the beginning of that cycle mean that the potential to reuse those products is reduced because you can't get the chemicals out of the plastics or you can't get the chemicals out of the textiles in the recycling process. So you have to discard them. We'll share this study from Chemsec that I mentioned at the beginning, and they kind of calculate how much financial saving there would be in the circular economy if you could keep the chemicals off the product design in the first place. There's been a couple of circular economy directives in the mm. EU, in the UK and in Europe. We'll have the right to repair becomes a key issue, I think, during the course of this year. So that's good news if we're moving, albeit gradually, in the right direction. Circular economy is a bit of an intuitive concept, but what's a short definition? Basically, you're not taking resources out of the, you know, you keep them in use and that's both resource efficient and changes the way we think about manufacturing. As Eche was saying, a lot of the problems that we have, for example, we have 200 years of scrap steel, but actually a lot of it has been welded or combined with other metals and it's difficult to separate it out and reuse it easily. Mm. And that's true also of textiles is that we've combined textiles in the way that makes it very, very difficult to separate it out and use the component parts. And one of the things that is happening now is that manufacturers are starting to think about how to, how to make things that can then be easily separated and reused efficiently. Yeah. So it's, it's lots of cycles of reusing. Yeah. I think elimination of waste. Yeah, elimination of waste is a big thing that I think the circular economy also pushes. Just eliminate waste and repurposing of things. Well, it's a nice segue into the summary of this episode, I think, where we've looked at textiles, not just clothes, but all the textiles that we use in our homes, on our furniture, on the floor. They all have environmental impacts as they're produced, as we use them, as we keep them clean and as we dispose of them. Eche, well, all of us have talked about the waste hierarchy which is about thinking what we buy and how we use it and how we finally dispose of it. But in all of these textiles, there are concerns about water, about energy, about chemicals and about microfibers. And we need to think about those in our daily lives as well as at the moment of purchase and disposal. We've been talking about microfibers which hold the chemicals and get washed with the water out of our clothes and our textiles as we clean them. We've thought about how we can reduce our impact through washing, where we lose microfibers into the environment, but we also lose chemicals that can have impacts on the endocrinal uh, responses of fish and other animals. They can really have damaging impacts on our environment. And contrary to popular belief, Products are not tested before they go into our supermarkets, but only when they're shown to have a problem. So think about this quite carefully. 
In terms of advice that we can give today, I think firstly, we all sort of came to the conclusion that we could and probably should wash things less and look at some of the old fashioned notions in that we should be spot cleaning. We should be airing our clothes if they're a little bit whiffy. We should freeze them. That can kill some of the bacteria that, that make our clothes smell. So don't wash them unnecessarily. When we do wash them, full loads, maybe counterintuitively, are less damaging. We also need to be aware of the products that are sold to us, even the green ones, are very good at telling us what's not in them. They're not very good at telling us what is in them. On the plus side, there is an increasing number of so-called green products. And we're not recommending any single product, but on our website, we've put a list and some details of the very many that are available. So buy less, think about what you buy, how you use it, how you dispose of it. Think about the 7,000 litres or six years worth of drinking water for each pair of jeans. And you will extend the life of your jeans if you wash them less. And hopefully this will be something that we can revisit with more positive news about some of the products that can help us avoid damaging the environment as we live our daily lives. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Neil McEwan on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. Thank you.